welcome to another episode of the Business Exchange, How Business Works, uh, brought to you by the American Business Council. So the Business Exchange is a program where business executives and experts share great insights about what they think on the economy of the um, country. And in some cases, we have um, also thoughts around what they could do on the um, shared some thoughts, um, or some of their visions on, on what the economy would be about. So it is it is um, actually, uh, like I said, it's a bi-weekly program. And so today we will be uh, discussing and we will focus on the imperatives of peace for a successful economy. Uh, so each time we read the national dailies and listen to um, the news in Nigeria, we are inundated with reports of uh, terrorism, banditry, separatism, if there's a word like that, abductions, and a host of other ills that are clearly threatening the peace of the Nigerian society. It's it's, it's not just a national concern, it's also a global concern. Because I, I recall reading a recent article uh, from uh, the United States Institute for Peace written by uh, Derek Hugh. Um, and in that article, it stressed that if U.S. and international policymakers hope to see Africa stabilize in a world that we notice have gone bottom up uh, with crisis of violence and other challenges, pandemic at all, then Nigeria must take a center stage in the decisions they make. So, um, so like I said, this episode, we will also look at the impacts of all these uh, issues that we have mentioned and, you know, um, look at its impact on, on the Nigerian economy and then look at what private sector can do in driving uh, peace building for Nigeria. To join the program, follow us on at abcouncil underscore ng on Instagram and on LinkedIn American Business Council Nigeria. And please use the hashtag, hashtag the ABC Business uh, Exchange to continue the conversation. So this special episode I have with me a very distinguished guest, in fact, two very distinguished guests and the very indifferent, um, now trying to find the right word, different uh, areas of existence um so um so but some convergence so um we have with us professor pat patrick utomi and uh, nima Arigua, and uh, professor pat utomi as most of us know him is a leading scholar in uh, in business political economy and media studies he's a founder for center um for value leadership and one of the early professors at the Lagos Business School. He was also a candidate for president of Nigeria 2007 and 2011. He coordinated the establishment of several civil society groups um, that really work on good governance and accountability, such as transparency in Nigeria, the consent professionals and the restoration group. Uh, in the business fair, he was at very early stages of his of his life, um, work career, chief operating officer for Volkswagen. That's how we call it in Nigeria, but I'm sure there's a, a way to pronounce it. Volkswagen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Volkswagen. <laughs> Served in, in senior um, government positions in his in an advisory capacity for the most part. He's an accomplished columnist and chairman business, the media limited, and obviously the creator of one of the most innovative, uh, but really um, on the on the on the stated, I must say, part, um, uh, programs, talk shows, the Patitos Gang, a TV uh, talk show. 
So, um, I mean, there are lots of other things, and I, if I would I could spend like one hour, you know, describing who Pat, Professor Patrick Tommy is, uh, but I'm sure um, we would also get to know him by um, exactly what um, he's also going to share today. So, Nima, Nima Ribabu is upcoming, um, but a great international relations expert with over seven years of experience, has great expertise in policy development at international and domestic levels. Uh, legal analysis and advocacy. She works with various um, institutions, uh, but one of the feats that really stands out is being the co-founder of NG Voices, including the award-winning app called Sabi. So welcome, Prof, and welcome, Nima, to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. I am really honored to be with Nima. As a rider into this, this conversation, you know, um, we, we know for certain that Nigeria has a large and heterogeneous population, overlapping ethnic, religious, regional and sub-ethnic um, identities. And the political structure we inherited from the colonial government, some would argue, um, was not one that harnessed potentials of the country's diversity, but, you know, a flawed structure based on ethnic lines, um, lines and zonings that um, our politicians have exploited to 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 draw um, um, ethnicity at all for electoral support. To, to what extent, really, can we lay the blame at the feet of the colonial governments? I'm, I'm going to start. Uh, this is just really uh, tilling the ground for the conversations we're going to. Have. <laughs> well, well. I, first of all, I am one of those people who believe that we spend too much time looking at the rearview mirror. History is very important uh, to help us not pull up in high-speed traffic without finding out if somebody's overtaking. Uh, but what matters more is how you look at the future. I think that if after 61 years of independence, we're still looking back to blame the colonials for our problems, there's something wrong with how we have engaged ourselves. Um, we came out of colonial rule, which had convenience as the basis for its major decisions. It was convenient for the uh, uh, trading companies that were the ones who really established interests around these parts of the world to get a crown charter and that we make Nigeria colonial territory. It was convenient to have a colony of Lagos and to have protectorates of Southern Nigeria and uh, uh, Northern Nigeria. It was convenient for budget purposes to bring them together in 1914 in an amalgam. Always were convenient things. It was convenient because the purpose of colonial hegemony was to move raw materials to support industry in Europe. And so uh, basically there was no industrialization in Nigeria under the colonial uh, uh, rule. Uh, at the time of self-government in 1956, there was hardly any industry in Nigeria. Actually, basically two factories, Nigerian breweries as it is today, and Federated Motor Industries. So. The first thing that the new Nigerian leaders who took over in 56, 57 had to do was try and bring as much progress as possible to their people with industrialization, with education, 
and so on and so forth. And the basis of organizing were regional lines at the time. So it was competition between Eastern Nigeria, Western Nigeria, Northern Nigeria about who would most bring progress to its people. And two American scholars uh, at Michigan State, I, I believe at the time in the 60s, did the best job of trying to put this in context. Because by the time the Nigerian Civil War was starting, and a lot of ethnocentric analysis was, oh, these tribal primitive Africans are at war, tribalism. Robert Melstein and Howard Wolpe argued that it was not a fair way to look at the problems in Nigeria. That what they call tribalism in this uh, 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 um, view or window was essentially competing ethnic nationality groups on regional lines trying to bring the most progress to their people. And they call that phenomenon competitive communalism. If you look in the main, what brought, what came out of that was economic growth. Um, a lot of the politicians were quite ethical. Premier of Eastern Region famously allocated industrial um, and uh, residential layouts, he didn't give himself one plot and all of that, all of that. So I wouldn't be so negative on this original competition. It just turned out that when the dangerous alchemy, as I call it, of soldiers and oil happened, when the military centralized authority and oil revenues gave them all the money to run from, the big generals at the top, ordering the colonels at the, at the state level, everybody came for a pre-bend, as Richard Joseph calls it. And we became a country of bureaucratic prebendalism, where the man there just hands out prebends to, to, to the, and that's where everything went wrong. So, okay, so I don't I'll, think we I'll, hold, <laughs> I'll hold, I'll hold that for for a moment and uh, move on to Nima very briefly. Nima, do you have some thoughts on this, or should we just you know run to the next? Because I'm, I'm you know, I, I find what um, Prof said about competitive commonality. Um, as 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 uh, as part of uh, the conversation into into the next um, really question I'm going to be sharing. But do you do you want to share some thoughts before we move on? Um, yeah, um, I I do agree with what um, he earlier stated about how you know we kind of focus too much on you know the colonial past. Yes, history should actually exist. History is there for a reason, so we don't repeat the past mistakes. But after the colonial rule, what did our leaders do is also a question that we need to ask ourselves. What did we as individuals also do? What parts did we play to where we are um, today? And if you look at it, I know you're still going to ask the question um, um, later on, but just to put, um, just to um, skim on it a little bit, if you look at, uh, uh, how we've gotten here that we are we would also realize that some of the actions that our parents generation our generation also did has actually led us to where we are today so it's not just about the colonists and what they did is also how we um how we managed the the sovereignty and how we managed the powers that we had at the time um leading on to where we had we are today yeah, th thanks a lot, Nima. And um, we really to the point that we're, we're discussing that the shift from what we call the competitive um, commonality 
has really led to a lot of crisis. And, and so far, Nigeria has recorded at least a 169% increase in abductions between 2019 to 2020. Uh, the militants insurgency in the north has displaced about 3 million persons, and I think really that is understating it in the Lake Chad Basin. And the drought and insurgency has further pushed headsmen uh, um, now described as self defense militias down south, where they now come in conflict with farming communities in competition for grazing land. And also, you know, we have set separatist sentiments in the southeastern and southwest of Nigeria that have really degenerated into the loss of lives, properties, and a heightened state of insecurity. So this shift in, again, the word, the, the, the phrase competitive commonality has really led to a lot of um, really issues that have uh, impacting uh, security. And I do recall that when we had the last uh, economic survey of uh, US companies in, in, in Nigeria, uh, we asked question what are the what are, what are the major issues of concern uh you know um you have about the country and the, the, the issue on insecurity really um got foregrounded for in, in in that in that um in that survey so this is a critical concern so i would i would ask what impact are, do you think these activities it's almost like begging the question but really if we're able to drill into some specifics that would be helpful what impact um have these activities uh, on the Nigerian economy and is there a correlation between the economic prosperity of the country and uh, these uh, securities we're seeing? So one thing we tend to not focus on on the African continent, um, and I'll put it down to Nigeria very soon, is that, you know, um, we do not always understand the, um, the com connection between peace and peace population and economic growth. What we think is, we think, oh, once we have one, the others can actually sort out themselves and they will be fine. There is actually a very strong link between economic growth and peace in itself because they actually work together. I'll give a quick example. Now, currently, not only are we going through heightening in insecurity, we're also going through the issues of inflation and um, and food shortages, right? What people do not realize is the people who are currently at the farms or, are, you know, are, are doing a Greek at this moment cannot go to the farm because they are scared of their lives. Now, this actually rests on insecurity, right? The number, the level of um, of resources that we currently also have isn't enough for the population that we currently have as well. Now, when people are not able to get the resources available for their basic needs, it means that a bunch of them will actually turn into crime, which is what we are seeing today. Everyone is readily or is quick to actually pick up arms because they do not have what to do in terms of economic i mean in terms of employment they actually do not have things that would provide the basic needs that they they need to actually survive so right now we are facing a situation where it's more like a survival of the fittest and everybody would want to do anything just to be able to get ahead um of their peers so yes there is actually a deep connection between economic growth and peace in itself because if there's no peace there can't be economic growth. Everyone will just be there trying to fight for their lives. And if there's no economic growth, we would see mass inflation, we would see population uh, compulsion, and we would see a whole lot of other things, including crime.
Yeah, okay. I don't know if people are looking closely at the numbers. I mean, there's a frightening question about how much of our revenues are going into importing petroleum products, the so-called fuel subsidy. But I wonder if anybody has looked to see that food importation is now almost equaling uh, uh, um, petrol subsidy or importation or whatever it is we call it. And the tragedy of those statistics is that Nigeria should easily be self-sufficient on both. If there is a testament of how a people can do damage to themselves, those statistics tell the story. Okay, now, um, I listened to the president's, uh, uh, well, did I really listen? By Well, I read about the president's broadcasts uh, on October 1, and I, I was shocked by the level of happiness with what has been done. Because if there is anything that is challenging about our situation, it is that simple logic tells you that when there's insecurity and people are not going to farms, as is self-evident in all the reports that we see, surely there will be food shortages. I'm now not talking about some academic analyzing anything, but I'm a businessman who is building an agri-industrial town in Edo State. And we cannot get supplies of plantain for the processing plants that we're building because people can't go and harvest plantain from their farms. And so there is no question about the link between uh, insecurity and underperformance of the economy. But very importantly, you know, when these things happen and they take us by surprise, it shows a weakness in both national strategy building and even the corporate strategy of firms sometimes, including some of us. Because what strategy is about is looking at trends and using trends to interpret possibilities. An American called Robert Kaplan, 20-something years ago, wrote a book titled The Coming Anarchy. And Kaplan predicted the possibilities that giving cleavages ethnic, religious, economic, that West Africa could descend into anarchy. He went as far as giving Joss as a crucible point from which West Africa could begin a descent into anarchy. And part of my reaction as a citizen, when and I was in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, when I saw Kaplan on CNN talking about the book, and I quickly purchased copies, part of my reaction as a citizen was to buy copies and give to my friends who were heads of security agencies to say, now is when to begin the fight to prevent this from happening. I actually created a social group, which we call NUTRA, Nigerians United to Resist Anarchy. And our primary goal was to make information like these available to decision makers so that we could prevent those things from happening. And part of why I was motivated that way was that Kaplan had written a book titled Balkan Ghosts in which he had predicted what would happen in the Balkans when Tito, the president of Joseph Bros. Tito of Yugoslavia, died. And it happened as we all watched live on CNN. And, and I'm saying, let's prevent West Africa from going this way by our people becoming uh, uh, acquainted with these trends. Unfortunately, we did not take up on the trends and manage them. And we have managed to end up 
where we are today with insecurity. And as you see, Joss became the epicenter and is still in the eye of the storm in this process because of the convergence point for these various cleavages. So yes, um, there's no question that security has direct impact on uh, peace. Um, but it's also possible that a country can have turmoil and thrive if it's an enclave system where you basically protect the production centers and the rest of the country may be burning, but those production centers are protected well enough that revenues are being created from production and exports or distribution. So there are all kinds of possibilities for development and stability. Now that, that's that's actually a great insight, you know. So you know, peace and um, in peace and economic peace may not necessarily be um, one you know, one for, without the other. You know, they they could they could co um, coexist and 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 yeah, and, Angola. And it can happen. Yes, Kabinda so, enclave yes, yes. during the midst of the civil war in Angola provided resources. It was an enclave that was thriving. And generated resources. It is possible to do that, surely. Yes. Okay. Maybe that. In fact, this would be another conversation for another day. Looking at how do we organize these enclaves, and um, you know, how do we, you know, make them ready and and, and available for for us to uh, thrive. And then perhaps private sector would like to know how they can work to build some of these enclaves because the reality is not just Nigeria, like I said, across West Africa, across the continent, you're seeing all these um, buckets of uh, strife. And, and I think this is this should be maybe the next uh, conversation we would have. Well, well, let's move to the issue around the NSAS, which was another um, unsettling chapter in, in the country. Uh, for me, I saw I saw um, NSAS not just as uh, a response, uh, you know, of, of the Nigerian youth to um, police brutality but I, I really saw it as the you know the the eruption of a volcano that you know that may have been tied to a lot of um, pain like unemployment and other biting uh, concerns you know from the youth uh, I know that you know the formal president uh, in 2017 said that we're all sitting on uh, a keg of gunpowder. You know when it comes to, 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 to young people, even though today I also read you know him saying that he's very optimistic about uh, the country. So I'm, I'm I'm happy for for, for that as well. But, but actually, the, the NSA's reaction has widely characterized uh, the youth population as a restive, you know, one, and and so there is. Uh, or there has been suggestions around, uh, you know, caution when looking at policy from uh, uh, formation and implementation by the Nigerian government. Um, really, how do we, uh, how would we advise the, the federal government to uh, rest frail nerves and create an enabling environment for businesses run by the youth to thrive? We don't need to look too far. The area of fintech, youth um, and entertainment, and, and all. And what should the average Nigerian do to really um, drive desired change? So there is the federal government doing their own bit, but there is also the need for 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 us to know exactly um, what we need to do. Because I always say as well that with any little space we have is that opportunity for us to create the little change we can. So I, I will go straight to uh, Nima. Um. 
so it takes a whole lot actually it's not just you know um doing just one thing to 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 you know calm the nerves of people um like i said when i started speaking um uh, trying to build a society is not just in one direction we have to look at different angles now what has happened over the time over time is the government had constantly told you know our parents generation a couple of lies not lies but they've been economical with the truth now in in that regard it has dented public trust and uh, it has also dented you know people's approach to when the government says something example is when you know you have the nys and nlc protest and they say they will do one thing then they come out from their meeting or the outcome of the meeting is a different thing when the NSARS protest happened, you had people say that, you know, they didn't believe the government when the government said they were taking SARS off the street. Now, in their own regard, the, the people were right. Considering the fact that we've been through this before, you say one thing and it doesn't mean another thing. If the government is indeed ready to, you know, bridge the gap between their citizens and themselves, it's high time they start putting in policies or putting in measures in place that shows that they're actually there for the interest of the people with regards to you know how they they, they do certain things how they approach certain issues ipoc for example um uh, protests for example not gagging the media not doing all those kind of things that kind of shows that yes we are actually ready to dialogue with you. We are ready to do things for you, but we also need your trust as well. Now, once they start doing things like that, that shows that they're strengthening democracy rather than gagging democracy, it would soften the minds of the people and want to give them a chance as well. With regards to the Nigerian population, when it comes to governors, we've given them a very long yardstick with how they approach, you know, what they do. But um, if they really, if they're really out for for change and they're out to actually calm us, um, they're out to bridge that gap. It's high time that you know they start saying the things that we want to hear and start behaving in a certain way that we want them to behave, rather than forcing us to do what they want. We put them there for a reason. <laughs> I just like wondered if you put them there. <laughs> did you? Did you really well, put them there? I mean, I voted. So, I mean, <laughs> Do you I think your vote counted? <laughs> honestly, I still, I still believe that it does. I mean, if okay. if our votes didn't count, they they won't be out here giving us one one thousand naira now for the votes. So. I, I have a right to actually tell them that okay. this is what I want. <laughs> well, right. well, let's let's because this is we're getting very quite excited, and I honestly would like for us to really drill for that into who put them there in a conversation. But um, I, I think we really need to go to an area which ties with private sector. Uh, so, so what role do you think private sector can play in, in really driving peace building uh, for Nigeria, uh, Prof? Well, um, a huge role, but it does not necessarily have to be a role in which they go out of the way to become something. Just doing what the private sector is supposed to do is a huge role. If the private sector creates jobs, it's playing a huge role. If the private sector engages its community, we call it all kinds of names these days, CSR, this is but if it becomes 
really truly a caring member of his community he plays a huge role i know margaret you're familiar with a concept that i uh, unfolded or unveiled during the lockdown which is called neighbor caring for neighbor yeah i'm actually speaking to it next week uh, at some local government event here in lagos and what i'm trying to do is encourage local government chairpersons to engage with businesses in their area uh, especially neighborhoods where they have significant manufacturing concentrations engage upper middle class communities that are located in the general geography and collaborate with the poorer neighborhoods so that together as a community they deal with some basic and important needs of the poorer neighborhoods um primary healthcare issues you know keeping the drains flowing um uh, uh, some uh, um environmental type things greening up the environment stuff like that and the people around those communities know that you really care you you want to make a difference in their lives we're introducing to that process now skilling up the young people in the envir- in that neighborhood so you go you give them a massive dose of vocational training and then they serve internships or attachments in the companies in that locale and develop some real skills and then they can go out and get work help with placement uh, can i just jump in here sorry to jump you know i you know i as a youth really keen to learn skills i mean i'm making a generic statement here because when people see um you know that that people that you, there's there's a quicker way to make money they they, they tend to, to to kind of it's almost like when you're dropping corn with your, uh, before the chicken he goes to that path which you know he sees that you know food is not knowing that that may take it into a trap but that seems to be what made you, so you have lots of youth involved in betting a lot of you know short cuts these days because they feel that that's the biggest way to make money they want to be seen to be spraying money and you know and all that maybe that's a natural thing but i see that it's a natural thing and all human communities have experienced it through history the french laissez-faire writer uh, frederick bastiat talks about man being inclined to gain without pay uh so people are always wanting to do that but the value of institutions and good political community is that you begin to reorient young people to see their own long-term best interests grown differently let's take the example of this skilling up uh, thing you give them vocational kinds of skills give them some entrepreneurship skills you show them that a lot more money is being made in this country by togolese people tiling floors than by some phd's running around the place and that they are um kalu what do you call this thing the, the gaming thing you were talking about that how many of them really make it in the end through that and it's not sustainable and stuff like that then you will see some of them going in that way then you can even scale up i i again i had a chance i was invited to speak at the retreat uh by nitsda the technology development agency of nigeria and i was saying to them you know you can become real heroes 
if you become the gateway to the fourth industrial revolution that brings a youth bulge into an entrepreneurial revolution in which they become really people with skills in an open uh, um, business environment where they can be giving services to Australia, Canada, all kinds of places, sitting here in Nigeria and earning dollars, and that you could become the meaty of Nigeria. The way the Ministry of International Trade and Industry revolutionized Japan, that you could become that for Nigeria in this gateway era. And they were fascinated by the fact that their, their role can be completely different from the role that they are playing today. And I think that what we need to do is energize different kinds of players, private sector, public sector of the nature of a NITA, and we can turn this thinking around. If we appoint champions, people who are passionate about those particular kinds of activities to drive them, you'd be amazed what man can do. The thing that makes man so different from any other being, animal, is that man can reprogram. And our real challenge is to reprogram. And we must try and do that with every energy we can muster. Thank you so much, Prof. Um, unfortunately, I can hear, that, as always, the bed chiming, you know, telling me that we're coming to the end of this of this show. I really wish we could go on. Um, but the good news, really, um, is that the American Business Council, in partnership with the Nigerian Orientation Agency and the Endola Initiative, will be continuing this conversation uh, in a webinar titled The Imperative of Peace for a Successful Economy on the 25th of October at 3 p.m. Nigerian time to engage critical stakeholders, uh, different stakeholders, government, clergy at all, and the public in a form to underscore the need of a peaceful society where lives and businesses can thrive and also encourage Nigerian institutions to partake of peacemaking processes and programs. Well, we have obviously um, Prof um, who will be there and uh, the uh, uh, Dr. Fayemi um, and, and Dr. Gariba and a couple of other, Dr. Ayo Teriba and a couple of other key stakeholders who we will hope we would um, want um, you to listen to and um, we look forward to this event. So thank you, Prof, and really thank you, uh, Nima. Nima, do you have a party shot for us before we round off? <laughs> No, not at all. Um, all right. Well, I would want to ask if you have downloaded Sabi yet, because you are also a part of what we have today in Nigeria. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to to download Sabi. I'm yes. going to that this show. I'll download Sabi and I'll let you know. I'm looking forward I'm to the as well. You should also download Sabi. Everyone yeah, needs to download. Uh, you know, once I'm instructed, I do anything. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll check it out. Thank you so much. So yes, we have come to the end of the show. Uh, follow us once again on the Pieces Exchange, Apple, uh, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud and Spotify. On social media, follow us at abcancel underscore ng on Instagram and on LinkedIn, American Business Council Nigeria. And so we'll continue the conversation on LinkedIn and Instagram using the hashtag, hashtag ABC Business Exchange. See you next episode, same time, Tuesday the 26th. And thank you so much for listening.